One of the most insightful and penetrating evaluations of the human heart that has ever been uttered was penned by the prophet Jeremiah about 2,500 years ago. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Think about the reality of that brief but powerful statement. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That says several things about our hearts. For one, it tells us that our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts deceive us into believing that our sin is not that big of a deal. Our hearts deceive us into rationalizing our actions. Our hearts deceive us into justifying ourselves. In our natural condition, our hearts are deceitful. We deceive ourselves and we deceive others by putting our best foot forward and concealing what is really in our hearts. That verse in Jeremiah also tells us that our hearts are desperately wicked or incurably sick, depending on your translation. The point is we cannot change our hearts on our own. They're they're too far gone. They are too bad. That verse also tells us that there's a sense in which it is impossible to know the depth of depravity in the human heart. It's impossible to grasp just how evil or how hard our human hearts can be. As an illustration of this point, think about the religious leaders of Israel during the time of Jesus. If there was any group of people on the planet planet who should have embraced Jesus, it was that group. They were the spiritual stewards of, who were supposed to direct the people's hearts toward the Lord God of Israel, the Holy One of Israel. They were the ones who had the privilege of spiritual leadership among the chosen people of God. But rather than embracing Jesus as their Messiah, they rejected Him. Not only did they reject Him, they actually got to the point where they despised Him and hated Him with a murderous hatred. They were willing to kill him or get him killed just to get rid of him. That is something you know if you have been a Christian for any length of time. If you've read the Bible, you've read the Gospels, but the familiarity can really rob us of just the atrocity of that. That kind of hardness of heart is almost inconceivable. Yet that is exactly what happened. Jesus became such a threat to their positions and their authority and their influence over the people that the religious leaders were willing to do anything to get rid of him. Beloved, don't ever underestimate the degree of anger that can come from people when you challenge their religion. Did you hear that? Don't ever underestimate the degree of anger that can come from people when you challenge their religion. 
you can still see the same kind of reaction today. And I'm not just talking about the obvious case of Muslims who are willing to wage jihad. I'm talking about those who are under the umbrella of Christendom. Oh, they may not be willing to go to the point of carrying out violence, though some might. But there is often a fierce anger that arises within people when their religion is challenged with the Word of God and by the Word of God. That is exactly what happened in Jesus' day. And it resulted, from a human standpoint, it resulted in his death. Let's turn together to Mark chapter 12 as we move into a new chapter of Mark's gospel this morning. It's a new chapter, but not a new part of the story, really, as we'll see. But a new chapter in our Bibles, the way they are configured or divided up. Please follow along as I read verses 1 through 12 of Mark chapter 12. Mark tells us, Then Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some, killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude. For they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let me remind you that we are, at this portion in Mark's gospel, we are looking at events that took place during the last week, the last few days of our Lord's life. That may not be clear at first glance because here we are only moving into chapter 12 of Mark's gospel and there are a total of 16 chapters That is because, as I've mentioned, Mark gives so much focus to the events that took place leading up to and following the crucifixion. Chapter 11 opens with a description of the triumphal triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. And there's a sense in which you could say that opened the last week of our Lord's life. The next day, Jesus went into the temple And cleansed it of the crass commercialism that was going on. Just as he had done right at the beginning of his ministry. 
The, the, the religious leaders of Jerusalem were furious about both of these events, the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. Rather than seeing the triumphal entry as a fulfillment of messianic prophecy, instead they were jealous of all of this attention being given to Jesus. They were also concerned that all this commotion from the crowds might result in the Romans coming down on them in some way and changing the status quo. They didn't want that because they liked things as they were. They liked the influence they had over the people, and they liked all the money they were making off of the people, which is why they were so angry that Jesus had thrown out the money changers. Jesus was a threat to their positions and their influence and their profit. Thus, instead of embracing him as their Messiah and King, they set their faces against him and opposed him in every way they could. That's what we see at the end of chapter 11. The chief priests and scribes became even more furious with Jesus for after cleansing the temple, going into it and ministering in the temple, and then of all things, for allowing the boys present to give him praise, which Mark doesn't tell us about, but is described in Matthew 21. As a result of all of these happenings, Matthew 21.15 tells us that the religious leaders were indignant. They were furious. So it is clear that Mark has arranged his material for us to see the connection between the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, the anger of the religious leaders, and then the opposition of the leaders. When you stop to think about it, if you have any love for Jesus, it is tragically sad to realize that in the final days of his life, when he faced the indescribable agony of the cross, he was wearied and weighed down by the constant questioning and harassment of groups of people who were looking for anything they could find to use against him. But that's what took place his final days. As Jesus was blitzed and hammered by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Herodians, all of these groups within Israel who were the leaders, now, we don't know exactly what day it was when this event here in chapter 12 took place because Mark doesn't specify the day. It's very difficult, frankly, to pinpoint the exact days that everything took place in this final week because the gospel writers aren't all that interested in giving us the exact day each event took place. Instead of giving us a chronology, they want us to see what a busy and full and hectic and stressful week it was leading up to the crucifixion. The point they want us to understand is that Jesus did not have any sort of reprieve in the final days before his crucifixion. He couldn't rest up and gear up for what was coming. Ministry was exceedingly demanding and exhausting right to the very end. So my, guess best is, best, my best guess is, as we move into chapter 12, that this is Tuesday or Wednesday of Jesus' final week. The pressure is building. The antagonism is building. The hatred against Jesus is building. The religious leaders are becoming desperate to find something to use against Jesus, which is what motivates them to question Jesus at the end of chapter 11. 
You may remember from last week that they demanded to know by what authority Jesus did the things he was doing. Who gave you the authority to come in here and cleanse the temple, to stop the wares from being brought into the temple? Who gave you the authority to allow these young boys who were probably there for their bar mitzvah to sing your praises and hail you as the Messiah? Who gave you such authority? That's chapter 11, verse 27. They came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus had already stated his authority many times throughout his ministry, and here's a key point, to some of these very same people in this crowd. So he knew they weren't asking a sincere question. They're just trying to trap him in some way. Therefore, instead of answering their question, he posed a question to them that would indict them and reveal their hearts whichever way they answered the question. As a result, they refused to answer the question. Now, Jesus could have ended the conversation at that point. Case closed. He has sort of put them in their place. They won't answer his question. He said, I'm not going to answer your question then. But Jesus was so grieved over their hardness of heart that he didn't leave it at that. Instead, he rebuked them and warned them that unless they would repent, they would completely miss the kingdom of God. And how did he do this? He did this by telling them a little parable which Mark doesn't record, but Matthew does. And we looked at it last week in Matthew's account. So Jesus followed this confrontation with a little parable to warn them of judgment. And again, beloved, Jesus could have ended the conversation at that point. He's not only made his point, he not only put them in their place, he warned them with a story, he warned them with a parable, but for him it's not over. He was so grieved over their hardness of heart, that he continued to drive home the point by telling another parable. And that brings us to this text here this morning in chapter 12. There is a chapter break at this point in our Bibles, but it wasn't there when Mark wrote his gospel. And unfortunately, it breaks up the story right in the middle. So let me encourage you to do something. Ignore this chapter break in your mind, and realize that this parable is a continuation of the story we began to consider last week when they came, the leaders came and challenged Jesus' authority. This is not just some random parable, you know, Jesus sitting around cross-legged in the temple somewhere uttering parables that make no sense and have no connection. This is connected to what's going on. They are questioning his authority, and he, in response, gives them this parable. And notice what he says. Chapter 12, verse 1. Then Jesus began to speak to them in parables. We looked at one last week. That's not in Mark, but it's in Matthew. Here's another one. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. <clears throat> This is a story to which the religious leaders could relate because this was a common practice in their culture in that day. Vineyards were an important part of the economy in first century Israel. 
Therefore, someone who owned land that could produce and support a vineyard would often use it for that purpose. If it happened to be a highly productive vineyard, it could produce enough for the family to partake of the crop, and then they could sell the rest of the crop for profit. So it was extremely valuable. A plentiful producing vineyard on land that could support it was a valuable commodity. So anyone who had a piece of land like that would hold on to it rather than sell it, even if he weren't able to be able to, if he weren't able to tend the land himself. Even if he had to be away, he's not going to sell it. He's going to hold on to it. If necessary, he would lease it to vine dressers to care for it while he was away. So that's what the landowner of this parable did. Jesus was telling a story that everyone in that culture completely understood. This man in the story planted a vineyard. He set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. All those components were necessary to ensure a good crop. This landowner did everything necessary to ensure a productive yield. Where did Jesus get the idea for this parable? In addition to the common practice of the day, it is almost certain that Jesus was alluding to a key and well-known passage in Hebrew Scripture. Back up with me to Isaiah chapter 5, and I'll show you what I mean. After the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, then Isaiah chapter 5. We looked at this passage a couple messages ago, so you may remember it from that message. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? God used this story way back in Isaiah's day to picture his relationship with Israel. God was the landowner who planted the choicest vine, and he was the one who did everything necessary to ensure a good crop. But the people of Israel didn't bring forth what they should have brought forth. Instead, they produced bad fruit. This was a familiar, a very familiar passage to the Jewish leaders. So Jesus used similar imagery in his story. Now let's go back to that story, that text in Mark chapter 12. Here in this parable in Mark chapter 12... The landowner represents God, and the vine dressers represent the Jewish leaders. The vineyard was the Jewish nation. So the point that was being communicated was that God had entrusted the nation of Israel as a whole to the Jewish leaders. 
He had entrusted his chosen people to the Jewish leaders. In verse 2, Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. It becomes clear as this story unfolds that the servant of this verse and the following servants in all the verses, that these servants represent the prophets who served on behalf of God, the landowner. Verse 3, And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Of course, that is exactly what happened to so many of God's prophets that he sent to, to represent him to the nation of Israel. They were beaten, they were stoned, they were persecuted, they were killed. Historical tradition tells us Isaiah was placed in a hollow log and sawn in half. Jeremiah, you know some of his woes, thrown in a pit. You, you, you know the story of the prophets. This is what happened to them. Whenever God sent his prophets to the, the people of Israel, his people, this is often what they experienced. So Jesus illustrated the point further. Verse 4, again he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. In other words, this was the repeated pattern throughout Israel's history. You can see it just by reading Hebrew Scripture, reading the Old Testament. This is what happened. Verse 6, Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. This, of course, is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the son of the vineyard owner. God sent him to the nation of Israel. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 10? I have come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That is to whom he was sent. Now eventually we got in on the program as Gentiles, but Jesus was sent to the Jewish people. God sent him to the nation of Israel, and because he was the son, it would not have been too much to assume that the leaders would respect him and welcome him with open arms. The fact is they did the opposite. Verse 7 tells us what they did. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. That last phrase gives us insight concerning why the Jewish leaders did what they did. Since Jesus was the Messiah, he was the rightful heir to be the king of Israel to be the one over Israel, to be the one honored by Israel. But the Jewish leaders didn't want that because they didn't want to let go of the control they had, the influence they had. They wanted his position. They wanted his prerogatives and his place over the people. Frankly, Jesus was a threat to them and their positions. That's the thought behind this phrase, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So that's what they did. Verse 8, so they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. It is clear from Matthew's account of this event, and we won't take the time to turn back to it, but I'll pull in a few thoughts from Matthew's account because, as you know, a lot of times a story in the Gospels, especially the Synoptic Gospels, is seen most fully when you combine all the accounts. 
And it is clear from Matthew's account of this event that the Jewish leaders were not making the connection. They weren't seeing the parallels between the story Jesus was telling and their actions. They they don't get it yet. They were tracking with the story, but they haven't figured out that they are the vine dressers and that this parable is an indictment of them. Keep that in mind. They, at this point, aren't seeing that. Verse 9, Jesus says, Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. You see, Jesus is able to ask and answer this question because they haven't realized that they are the vine dressers. In fact, it's very likely, now catch this, it's very likely that the last part of this verse, which begins with, He will come and destroy the vine dressers, it's likely that that is actually the answer that the leaders gave to the question Jesus posed. In other words, you could put that part of the sentence in quotation marks. Here's their answer Jesus asks, What will the owner of the vineyard do? Here's their answer He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. That's the way Matthew presents this statement. And if they did give this answer to Jesus, it is shocking. Their hearts were so hard and so deceitful and so blind, they couldn't even see that they were the vine dressers in this story. They didn't make the connection. When they answered Jesus' question in Matthew's account, they even called the vine dressers wicked men. They said, when Jesus asked the question, what's he going to do? Oh, oh, they'll... they'll you know, he'll come and he'll, he'll do this to these wicked men. He'll judge those wicked men. But they couldn't see that they were the wicked men. They could see how wrong it was for the vine dressers in the story to do what they had done, but they couldn't see how wrong it was for them to reject Jesus, resist Jesus, and plot against Jesus. What an example of the deceitfulness of the heart. What an example of hardness of heart, blindness of heart. Beloved, it ought to make us shudder when we realize how deceitful and how hard our hearts can be. These men were so blind to their own true spiritual condition. And when we read their story, it ought to make us wonder how often we are blind to our spiritual condition. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever wonder, are there things in my life that I just don't see? Do you ever ask yourself the question, in what ways is my heart hard? In what ways is my heart deceitful? Where am I blind? Where where do I just not get it or see it? Do you ever ask the Lord to show you your blind spots? It would be tragic if we read this story about the Jewish leaders, but we We fail to evaluate our own hearts. This story has an inherent warning about the potential of the heart to be hard and deceitful and blind. This is a glaring example because these leaders were so blind and so hardened and so deceived that they actually, with this statement, pronounced their own judgment. So Jesus begins to make application. Verse 10, he says, Have you not even read this scripture? 
The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus knew they had rejected him. Jesus knew what they were going to do to him. So he thought of this passage from Hebrew Scripture. His story depicted what the Jewish leaders had decided to do to him. They had rejected him, and in just a few days, they were going to kill him by manipulating the Romans to carry it out, by forcing Pilate's hand to crucify him. So Jesus quoted from a messianic psalm. But before he did, notice, he prefaced the quote with the question, Have you not even read this scripture? Haven't you read this scripture? Oh, what a rebuke that was. These were the religious leaders of Israel. But they didn't read the scriptures. Beloved, you would be shocked at how common this is still today. I know you would be. There are so many religious leaders within Christianity, within Christendom, that never read the scriptures. They never study the scriptures. They just don't. Oh, maybe they read their, you know, the, the, their fathers or their ancestors and whatever their line has to be and their traditions, but they don't read and study the Scriptures. So Jesus pointed them to the Word of God. He quoted Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. The first part of the statement, which says the stone which the builders rejected is a reference to his upcoming crucifixion. The next part of the statement The the phrase has become the chief cornerstone is a reference to his resurrection and his exaltation. He knew that the Jewish, Jewish leaders were going to try to get rid of him. They were going to have him killed. So he wanted them to know he would be exalted by his father. He would be exalted by Yahweh. He also wanted them to know that their decision to reject him would not only result in their own destruction and judgment, it would also result in a judgment on their privileged position. So in Matthew's version of this story, Mark's is more abbreviated, in Matthew's version, Jesus said this at this point, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. The word that is translated nation there in some of our English translations is the Greek term for people or Gentiles. That's important to know because Jesus was not stating, please hear this, Jesus was not stating that the nation of Israel is going to be replaced in God's program by another nation, such as England or the United States or any other nation. What Jesus was predicting is the very thing the New Testament tells us, which is the fact that the Jewish nation has been temporarily set aside and God's blessing in this era is on the church, which is almost exclusively Gentile, at least largely Gentile. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is a, is a lengthy explanation of all of this. The kingdom and all of the spiritual advantages given to Israel would now be given to other vine dressers. Now this doesn't mean that God is completely finished with Israel. He will turn back to them again to bring them to repentance and faith. But for now, for now God's work centers on the church. 
That is why Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. The church is now the focus of God's program as he redeems people from every nation to bring forth good fruit. And that is what Jesus meant by the statement, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people bearing the fruits of it. Because of their hardness of heart, the nation of Israel as a whole has been set aside temporarily as a judgment. This does not mean, this does not mean that individual Jews can't repent and be saved because they can. And God is, has always called down through the centuries individual Jewish people to believe in him. Paul said, listen, if God was done with Israel, I wouldn't be saved. And still in our day and age, there are saved Jewish people. But what, what Jesus was saying on this occasion from Matthew's account and what the rest of the New Testament teaches is, is that, that because of their hardness of heart, the nation of Israel as a whole has been set aside temporarily. And those who refuse to repent and harden their hearts will face severe judgment. So Jesus added one more comment that is recorded in Matthew's gospel. Mark doesn't include it in his abbreviated account. Jesus said this at this point, And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder. That is a chilling statement. Jesus is the stone which the builders rejected, and he has become the chief cornerstone. As such, the only proper response to him is to embrace him. Those who refuse to do so because of apathy or because of animosity will face severe judgment. And by the way, animosity toward Jesus isn't the only unacceptable response. So is apathy. That's probably why Jesus worded his statement the way he did. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken. That's apathy. Picture someone just, you know, walking along, not really caring, tripping and falling. And then the, state, the phrase, on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. That's animosity. The only proper response to the chief cornerstone is to embrace him. Those who refuse to do so because of apathy or because of animosity will face severe judgment. To those who refuse to submit to Jesus, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. To those who embrace him, he is the precious cornerstone. Tragically, the religious leaders of Israel there in the first century chose to reject him. Which is why Jesus warned them with this parable. And notice what is stated in the, the next verse, verse 12. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They finally got it. They finally understood that he was speaking of them. So did they repent? No. They tried to apprehend Jesus. Isn't that almost unbelievable? They saw the works of Jesus. They saw the miracles of Jesus. They heard the words of Jesus. They heard the warnings of Jesus. And how did they respond? They sought to lay hands on him. 
They tried to figure out a way to apprehend him and do away with him without getting the multitudes all worked up. You see, there were many who had come to the conclusion that there was something special about this Jesus of Nazareth. They may not have had the complete and accurate picture of Jesus, but they did know there was something special about him. Maybe he's a prophet of God or a teacher. He's a great rabbi. So if the religious leaders did anything to Jesus, the multitudes who had been ministered to by Jesus would have been outraged. That's what the chief priests and Pharisees were afraid of. And that's the only thing that kept them from going after Jesus right here on the spot. Right there in the temple complex. They completely ignored the warnings of Jesus in this parable. And they looked for a way to get him. This kind of hardness of heart is, to, to me at least, it's just it's inconceivable. And it ought to be a warning to us. Though we may not express it in the same way, we are capable, beloved, of having hard hearts. A hard heart is not only expressed in animosity toward Jesus, it is also expressed in apathy toward Jesus. That's still a hard heart. So what is the condition of your heart today? What is your attitude toward Jesus? Have you embraced him as the precious cornerstone or have you rejected him? Is your heart tender to him, or is it hard, or is it just apathetic? Listen, if you have not embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as the precious cornerstone, listen, you have been warned today. You have been warned this day. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder and there's a sense in which the end result is still the same. Whatever the case, whether a ceramic vessel falls on a rock or the rock falls on the vessel, the result is the same. The vessel is broken and shattered. So that's what happens to the person who ignores Jesus or the person who rejects Jesus. The result is the same. You see, there are people... In, in, in this world, in life, who have this animosity toward Jesus. They fight against him. They try to discredit him, try to discredit his word. And then on the other, other hand, there are those who just go through life and they ignore him. It's not even worth talking about, thinking about. It's just apathy. The result is the same. So don't dismiss this message by saying, well, I'm not like these religious leaders who wanted to kill Jesus. I would never think of killing Jesus. If I, if I happened to be back then, I wouldn't have thought of killing him. That may be true. Your heart may not be that hard. But if you refuse to embrace Jesus and you simply ignore him with apathy, your heart is still hard. And you will still face the judgment of God. Because Jesus is the chief cornerstone, precious to those who embrace him, but a stone of stumbling and rock of offense to those who refuse him. Which is it for you? Let's bow together, please. As you bow your head, thinking about what you have seen with your own eyes in God's word this morning and thinking about what you have heard even if, even if your heart is not hard toward the Lord, and even if you have embraced him as the precious cornerstone, 
it is still worth us praying, Lord, please show me blind spots in my life. Please show me things in my life that I just, I don't see, I, I, I don't make the connection or I don't recognize things that are displeasing to you, things that I need to address, things that I need to change. Even, as I said, even if your, your heart is not hard toward the Lord, that is, that is a worthwhile prayer. That is a valid prayer for us to pray on a regular basis. Lord, show me. Just show me. Help me see. Whether it's through a friend or a spouse or through circumstance, just help me see what I need to address in my life. But maybe you're not even at that point because you're, you're even not even interested in this stuff. You're either, you're either characterized by animosity toward Jesus or apathy toward Jesus. So you just don't even care or when you think about it, it angers you. You're, you're against it. Again, again I, I tell you, you've been warned this morning by the Word of God. If you die in that condition a condition of apathy or animosity. You will, to use our Lord's analogy, you will be ground to powder. That is, you will be judged, destroyed for refusing to embrace the precious cornerstone. So I urge you to let go of whatever is holding you back and embrace Jesus Christ. He is indeed the chief and precious cornerstone, the stone which the builders rejected. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous, marvelous in our eyes. Father, thank you for instructing us this morning from your word. Thank you for challenging our hearts this morning from your word. Thank you for this mirror that we can look into and hopefully respond to. And Father, I think it would be easy for us to look at this story and say, well, I'm not, I'm not in that category like the, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes who, who were so furious with Jesus that they wanted to lay hands on him to destroy him and get rid of him. And, and that may be the case. But there's still a lesson here for us, an important lesson for us, to be aware that our hearts can be, whether apathetic or hard or certainly blind, and then, Father, surely in a crowd this size, there are those present who have not embraced Jesus as the precious cornerstone. For whatever reason, disinterest or maybe resistance, whatever the case, may your Holy Spirit draw that man or woman this day. We pray in the matchless name of our precious cornerstone, the Lord Jesus. Amen.